Hello, and welcome to 10 Very Big Books, a Malazan read-through podcast. I'm Peter Bond, and I've read each book in the main series. However, my friends are reading the series for the first time. With me today is my friend and closest confidant, India Jones. Hello. And rounding out the podcast is Joshua, the dream snaker baker. S-s-s-s-s-s. It's my snake sound. I have a sore throat. I can't do it that bad. Alrighty, so a few weeks back, we reached out to Steven Erickson and asked him if he wanted to be on the show. And then, much to our surprise, he agreed and mortifyingly listened to the show as well, which was something, yeah. He gave me some of my favorite compliments. Yes. That's all to say, today, uh, we actually just finished recording uh, a a conversation with him, and... um, that's what the episode's going to be today. So it was a lot of fun, and we are really excited to have him on the podcast. So uh, without further ado, here's yeah, without further ado, here's your boy Steve. Here it is. See you soon. All right. Apparently, you guys have questions. We do. I can't. I can't believe it. But anyways, go ahead. Let's let's get into it. So. Uh, You've had a you've had a few different series of books, um, Willful Child, and then uh, you know Carcanus, and now this uh, mm-hmm. the God is not willing series. And I was curious about um, what lessons you took away from writing Gardens of the Moon about how you wanted to approach writing the first entry in a series of books. Oh, that's a I don't even think I've ever heard that question. Um, what lessons did I take? It, it's hard for me to pin that down because Gardens of the Moon took eight years to find a publisher. So there's eight years between it and the writing of Deadhouse Gates. And um, so I think my writing had had matured uh, a fair bit in between the two. And I think now if I sat down to write Gardens of the Moon, it might come out a little bit different in some respects. And what type Uh, of differences? um, I might. That's a good question. I mean, I might hold people's hands a little bit more uh, rather than dangling them over the fire. Um, (laughs) The... I don't know. It's the thing was, I basically have learned all my schooling in writing was as a short story writer. So when I sat down to write novels, I simply extended the short story writing style into novel length. And of course, the thing with short stories is that every sentence, um, almost, and certainly every paragraph has to carry more weight than it normally would in a novel. So suddenly in Gardens of the Moon, you're being handed a novel that is actually written like a short story where everything is carrying more weight than appears. Secondly, I came through the Iowa Writers Workshop. And so that's very much kind of teaching a style of writing, which is not found often in fantasy. And that is basically sort of Stephen King's rule of of he said, she said. Um, You're not projecting a lot of uh, description to um, how things are said. And it's all show, don't tell. And Mm. so there's very little exposition. So you're being dropped into a story and how the characters are behaving is telling you more things than appears on the surface. Mm. So I think these days when I sit down to write, I'm I'm a bit more aware of that. And um, I take my time a little bit more. Uh, I don't don't, want to drag people through it as fast as I did with Gardens of the Moon. And secondly, I mean, India, you'd read Hunger Games and that was it, right? And, yeah, I mean, yeah, and I wouldn't yeah, even really for fantasy. that. Yeah, no, it's not. It's not epic fantasy. And it's not even kind of. Not even. Yeah, no. No, and of course, one of the things Gardens of the Moon was was me setting up all of the tropes of epic epic fantasy and then pissing all over them. 
So I was, I was basically <laughs> undermining all of those tropes. But if you're unaware of the tropes, then right. you're not aware of what I'm up to, right? Um, Definitely. So, yeah, so that, that makes it an even steeper learning curve. So I'm very impressed that you're staying with it. Uh, I'm surprised you're not like actually chained in, in the basement somewhere and, and sort of being force-fed force these books. But um, it, that's practically what happens. I, I won't lie. <laughs> I thought as much. No, I thought as much. Are you going to stay with it? Um, I, I think I'm in it for the long haul at this point. Now I'm good. I am more curious now, and now that I've read the first one, um, the second one is definitely. And I think everyone says this, or at least that's what Peter explained to me. Like, okay, once you get through the first one, if you can do that, then you can you can get through the rest. So I kind of yeah, I kind of roll up my sleeves and get to work with the second one. Um, yeah, because yeah. it was like I got external validation by getting the book deal for the first one and then it, it did well and so suddenly i was given permission to write the novels i wanted to write in fantasy and so dead house gates is very much one of those but here's the other thing to bear in mind especially this is it's important to be i think reading these the text as opposed to just listening and there are scenes that you've already come to even the beginning of, uh, well, Gardens of the Moon, but especially now in Dead House Gates, that are going to resonate and come back in book eight or book nine or book 10. And so yeah. um, if you think of the scene you guys just recently spoke about where Culp, Hiborg, uh, Felicin, I can't remember who else, Gessler, uh, Stormy, Stormy and Truth, all end up on this boat mm. uh, in yeah. this other warren. And it's, you know, it's, it's peopled by headless corpses uh, manning the oars and yeah. there's a guy pinned to his chair uh, by a spear uh, in the in the captain's cabin well I don't just throw that in there for for interest sake it wasn't uh, for laughs no we, we were going to we're going to revisit it and we're going to revisit it from at least two different angles one in the fourth book I think and one in the sixth yeah. and so it's always if you see me creating something like that I don't I don't just leave it there it's going to come back. It's going to be important later, or we're going to see it from another angle. So the only thing I could promise you, India, is that there is a payoff at the end of all of this. <laughs> it all so comes stay together. With it. it comes together. Yeah. Um, I think, no, I was just going to say that, that, that for me is, I think that's the hardest part is not understanding um, where it's going. And in a way though, that I think that people who do read fantasy kind of, or maybe even not, I can't even, I can't even fathom most of the time when I'm reading, I'm just reading and I'm, and I'm, mm -hmm. and I'm just, everything's yeah. happening. And then something else like I, but Peter and um, Josh are always able to be like, Oh, well, yeah. You remember in the last book when this happened and, and I'm trying to get to that level of understanding yeah. once I, and that's, that's, that's the dream so far, but yeah. And of course the other thing is having, you know, kicked at all the tropes of, of epic fantasy in the first book, I couldn't just repeat that process for the next eight books, nine books. So, and not only that, taking the piss out of those tropes uh, is an easy thing to do, but coming up with something new in its place, in the place of those tropes, is a more difficult thing to do. So that's what I set out to do. So it's not going to follow your traditional uh, epic fantasy narrative at all. And you're going to find that out very soon because you'll be going to Memories of Ice, the third book, which takes you back and picks up after the events on, in Gardens of the Moon. Um, Fourth book is going to leapfrog and it's going to partially, uh, eventually end up back in seven cities. Fifth book is set in a completely different setting. So each one is going to be feeling like a standalone novel, but they're all connected. I promise. And I actually think the connections and the payoff to, to talk about, eh, you know, 
that scene in Deadhouse Gates that comes back in four and six. It always strikes me as it, it is really rewarding when it pays off, and it, it always so. strikes and it always really strikes me as so, I'm I'm almost blown away by the audacity of it. Do you know what I mean like? <laughs> I'm just like, man, I can't believe it, the con has been going on this long. You know, I especially felt yeah. that really near the end of the series. You know, it's just like, wow, I've been being played the whole time. You know, it's like just play, slipping in right under the radar, so to speak. I was kind of forced to do that. Um, and the reason this is going to sound ridiculous, but when my editor first, you know, gave me his edited version of the manuscript of Gardens of the Moon and later Dead House Gates and Memories of Ice, especially the second two. He was always concerned about length because book publishers hate long books. Yeah. Um, and he would always sort of point out sections to say, well, can we cut that? And I'd say, well, no, that comes back in book eight or <laughs> that comes back in book nine. And then, of course, I realized I couldn't be lying to him. So I had to make sure it came back in book eight or book nine. Yeah. And that was kind of... You had made a commitment it, in some way. I had made a commitment, yeah. And so just on the basis of my, I guess, own integrity, I wanted to make sure that that happened. So once I set those things up, um, I kept them in mind. And I knew I was going to swing around and, and we're going to revisit these things. That is impressive memory. <laughs> well, I don't know if I could do it now. I'll tell you that. <laughs> Next question. Yeah, so... Um, so my, my question for you is, uh, so someone today, uh, I was getting my hair cut, and my barber was explaining the books to my barber, and he was like, well, why is it impossible to read? And I was like, well, imagine you're given the first Harry Potter book, and the book is about Ron, Harry, and Hermione, and they're 38. And every four sentences, someone's like, remember when you killed the Dark Lord, and you don't get to see any of it, and it's just stuff they're doing now, but mm -hmm. also you have to know about all the things that they did to kill Voldemort, or you won't understand the book. And what inspired you to hurt me like this? Like, <laughs> what, 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 was, what went into that decision to, to focus so highly on a group that has this big established history that you purposely hide from the, from the reader for, I assume, a long part of the series? Yeah. Um, don't forget, the Malazan world was initially gamed, okay? So it was AD&D to begin with, and then we switched to GURPS, uh, Steve Jackson's generic universal mm -hmm. role-playing system. Um, and all of our gaming basically provided the foundation, the backstory, if you will, for the novels. There are some elements of the novels that were gamed, but there was a lot that led up to them that did not show up in the books. And so I, I, I wanted us as a reader to be dropped into a story and I wanted the characters to have history. I didn't want them to be farm boys who were suddenly roped into, you know, the grand adventure. Uh, I wanted these people to have history. And some of that history was going to be relevant and certainly relevant for the characterizations, but relevant also for the larger story, because it's basically a kind of fictitious history that I'm writing. And so because it's a history, all history is built on, on hidden foundations beneath the surface of, uh, of where you're walking. So um, that needed to be, play a role in all of this. And then I was going to reveal only what I, what I felt you needed to, to know for those moments. Um, and then just build from there. I have to say, I'm, I've really been entertained by um, you guys doing this podcast. I, I've listened to all of them, and they've been a lot of fun. They've been a lot of Thanks fun. Thanks a lot. Uh, I'm sorry for no, some no, it's great. <laughs> it's great. In India, you have a very infectious laugh, so that helps too. Thanks. Uh, they keep me laughing. No, that's good. How, how much of those of 
playing with the character's history, do you think is maybe a microcosm of maybe larger ways you're kind of prodding and talking about history in the series as a whole? Because I feel like reflecting on history and the way it's shaped by historians and and, Mm -hmm. in the consciousness is definitely a part of it. Yeah. So do you think the character's history is reflecting that? Some of them. Um, How technical do you want me to get here? There is a strong metafictional element to the entire series. Yeah. And it can be also described as both postmodernist and post-structural. So, yeah, (laughs) you're looking (laughs) you're looking triumphant. Why is that? Well, I wrote a. I had a question about postmodernism, and I, I received a real shellacking from. I've the been two yelling of, at him for <laughs> six straight days about this. Ah, so well, it's a great day. Yeah, no, um, and the cipher for that is entirely the eighth novel, Told the Hallows. Yeah. But when you get there, that is the cipher. That's basically telling you how the story has been told up to this point and how it will be told uh, following. And. Um, so yes, it, it's it is it's. Uh, I mean, I came out of that sort of postmodernist kind of approach to, to literature, anyways. So, a real life does not have uh, a novel narrative structure. Uh, it does not have that. I mean, it has a beginning. Um, and there may be climactic elements in one's life, but you don't recognize them until after you've gone through them, and then you die, and so it, it shuts itself off very quickly. Um, yeah. And that kind of narrative is not satisfying to uh, somebody being told a story. So the story actually has to be more important. And and in that sense, everything that's in there is serving that dual purpose and not only sort of entertaining and driving along a narrative, but in appeasing the desire of the reader and the audience to have a story told to them. And there has to be an emotional investment as well at the same time. So, and that's why... Told the Hounds is, is basically telling you exactly what's going on um, in terms of where this story is coming from. I flip it in book 10, but that's okay. By then, everybody's either bought in or they're dead. So, yeah. um, when, when, when you have a character like Kruppa introduced... Krupp. 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 This is the, this is the question. Yeah. This is Krupp? the question. Krupp. 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 Just Krupp? Mm. Um, when you have a character like him, who, who um, especially in Told the Hounds later, grows into talking mm. about these metafictional elements and, and kind mm. of postmodern aspects of it. Um, but when he starts in Garden of the Moon, how much of him maybe growing into that was that in mind? Or were you kind of just having fun with him as a character? Well, I knew Told the Hounds would be told from his point of view. I knew that early on. Um, but yes, he certainly evolved. Um, and he went through a fair bit in Memories of Ice. Uh, why well, his eyes grew wide when you said that it was told. From should, should I take should I take my headphones off? <laughs> no, you're, you're good. Please. Continue. Yeah, sorry about that. I, I can't remember if you were the one hating Krupp or not, or India. Uh, no. It's a mutual. I think dislike. I liked him toward the end. I think Univer- yeah. universal Krupp love in my mind. <laughs> so I was reading online when I was trying to figure out what I could possibly ask you. And I saw that the poems in um, in the first book are supposed to, like, tell what's going to happen mm-hmm. in the chapter. Is that true? Sometimes, yep. So, yeah. um... Most people skip them. That's the problem. Oh, I, well, I don't... I didn't skip them. I just didn't understand them. So. I, I, will, I will say, India, I read them really closely every time, and I always know there's something I should get out of it, and I've yet to get it out of it. And, yeah. You probably are, but not entirely... On the surface, sometimes the poems reflect the subtext of the story and mm. the themes of the story. Um, 
And quite often I use uh, the metaphors to comment directly on the themes because I'm not going to be commenting directly on the themes within the narrative. So I use the poetry to do that. Ah. Now, did you do you write the poem first or do you write the chapter first? I write the poems first. Really? I them first. No way! Yeah. Yeah. That's because awesome. it's it's the it's the equivalent of me putting notes up on my wall or or around my laptop saying these are the these are the themes of this chapter. Um, except, it's that equivalent, yeah. except so, way cooler because it's a poem. Well, I hope so. Yeah, yeah definitely. But before you, be, like you write the when you're writing the poem, do you do you have an idea of what's going to happen in the chapter? Like you know, like oh, Philistine's going to go do this or that, or are you just you know you're really more channeling than the ideas and themes of it, and then maybe th- those types of character yeah. plot stuffs coming later. I leave a lot open to spontaneous invention. Um, generally, when I'm when I'm writing notes for uh, these books, uh, my notes consist of the chapters with the characters listed who are going to appear in that chapter. And that's almost it. And I know where everything's heading, but I allow myself to to have as much freedom as possible for spontaneous invention um, mm. as to how they get there. Yeah. Jump, jumping in real quick, actually, something I've been mm. curious about, speaking of kind of having a plan. So when you started writing Gardens, and maybe even before, did you know the overarching tale you were going to tell or did you i mean you must have had some idea because gardens has so much laced in it that obviously is going to be revisited but did you know everything do you feel like it was 80 percent? like where were you at at that point i knew where i was going to end up Mm, and it was simply a question of getting there and then i knew that there were going to be um three major i guess geographical um settings that were going to converge into mm. one. Um, and then I knew I had one character whom you've met in Gardens of the Moon very briefly, uh, that being Tavor, who was going to be the central spine of the entire series. But I had to really keep her reined in. And I kept her reined in pretty much until the last 50 pages of the 10th book. So um, she's going to be playing a fairly major role in the story to come. Uh, and I knew that was going to be the case. Um, and then I had certain scenes um, that were in my head for what 18 years, damn near, and and I just had to write my way to get there and not rush. And I didn't rush because it's like three million plus words. Yeah, the world's I longest short story. I think it's funny you say that because I, I like revisiting Gardens of the Moon this time. You know that scene with uh, when Ganois comes back to his house and his sisters are there. Ganos, 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 Yes. <laughs> Um, you know, to well, see the three of them there is like such is kind of a moment and it's imbued with more weight in that moment than it obviously did the first yeah. time I visit. So it was yeah. really kind of interesting to come back to a second. And time. that's why I mean, uh, rereads are, are, are where the major rewards I think are going to come. Um, yeah. it's, it's by revisiting these things. I know yeah. you guys are you guys are dumping all over for listen right now. Poor for listen. I mean. Hey, I'm, I'm trying to. St- I'm, I'm, I'm trying to stick up for her. Always, yeah, I will good. have no, uh, no regrets until eventually I will super regret what I've said. But I, until no, then, you don't I'm have to regret life. what you said. It, it's it's basically <laughs> she is a she is a character who um, almost forces a judgment upon the reader, and yeah. you can judge oh, her yeah. harshly or you can judge her with compassion. Uh, yeah. Which is not saying you're forgiving of her actions because some of them are, are unforgivable. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But the context of of her experience, um, I had to stay as true to that as possible. And it wasn't going to be pretty. And of course, where she is headed is something you'll find out, obviously. 
but she was one of my favorite characters to write. So I don't know what that says about me. <laughs> well, she's one of my favorite characters to read. So me I don't too. know what that says about me too. But I would call I, her divisive. <laughs> well, uh, and she's hurting, right? And, oh yeah. yeah. And anyone who's hurting to that extent will lash out. I mean, that's what yeah. they do. Um, yeah. Now there's, when, there's, Go ahead. There's such a okay, diversity. You go. You go. <laughs> I'm gonna go. So you say that uh, it really comes through with the rereads. Um, you understand that if people reread the series, you've locked them into like like de- like years of their lives are rereading these same ten books. Do, mm-hmm. uh, do you? How many rereads do you think it would take someone to get everything out of this series, or is that an impossible question? I don't know. Um, you would not believe how many. Fans have contacted me to tell me they're on their seventh reread, oh or their God. eighth, or their tenth, um, and, and they're still I, getting new things out of it. So I don't know. It depends how carefully one reads, I guess. It depends where you are in your life as to what you pick up on, uh, what is important to you in, in a scene. That will change. It changes over time. Um, so you know, you may start, you know, thinking, "Oh, I'm going into an epic fantasy series, and I want to see lots of battles and sword swinging and, and magic and dragons and all the rest." Um, and you'll get it; you'll get all that stuff. But then you read through it the second time, and you know all that's coming, so you're actually paying attention to other things. And quite often, that will be, "What are the characters up to? What are they feeling? Um, what is their arc? Uh, what what aspect of the role of the of the hero's quest are are they?" you know, representing, you know, so all of these other things will come into play. Um, and then a lot of the, the, the short foreshadowing is, is fairly, I, I, I don't, I don't hammer the foreshadowing. It's, it's a very light tap, uh, just very light. And so then they may pick up on those things. Um, second, third time through. I think it's a really interesting idea to know that like, you know, I read this series now and I'm younger now. And then the idea that like 30 years from now, I will also like, you know, I'll read Midnight Tides again and I'll just, you'll bring a totally different set of experience. to it. I think so. so. I think that's, yeah. I think you know, all readers do. About revisiting. Yeah. yeah. All readers do. And quite often, you know, we go back to the books that, that caught our eye or caught our hearts um, in our adolescence. And, yeah. and in revisiting those things, we'll go, really? <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, at the same time, um, we're searching for a kind of nostalgic feeling when we go back to reread these things. So there's a comfort that is, is offered by the familiarity of returning, say, to the Malaysian world 10 years from now. Yeah. So um, all of that plays a role. Because it's certainly stuff I've experienced. I go back and read books that I read when I was you know, 11 or 12. And um, sometimes he wince. I mean, the writing can be you know, leave something to be desired. But I'm always prepared to the child I was who read that back then. And, yeah. and to respect the fact that because I read that is what has brought me to where I am now. And I'm hoping that will be the case for many people who read the Malazan series. Well, what are, what are some books you've revisited recently? That's a good question. Um, believe it or not, I have a number of times revisited Edgar Rice Burroughs, because that's what I grew up with. Uh, I don't know if you can see it in the background here, but... It's a big a collection. Whole, there are, there collection. are books. Yeah, they're yeah. all books behind that jungle, which I have to use a machete to get to my books. But <laughs> the, um, and those are the ones that I first discovered. They were the first uh, mm. works of fiction that um, I actually got into. And I got into them not because of the content, but because of the covers. Frank Rosetta uh, illustrations on the covers that just blew yeah. my mind. And he, uh, Frazetta was doing 
the Ace editions of Burroughs and Robert E. Howard, uh, the Lancer editions of uh, Conan. Mm -hmm. And so those ones um, catch my eye. I just recently tried to start up reading a, a particular Conan short story because I'll be writing an essay on Robert E. Howard um, for somebody else right now. And I couldn't do it. It was very difficult. Why? So um, I could see all the bones mm. of what he was doing you know, very, very quickly. Um, whereas, say, something like, uh, I have a first edition of Tarzan of the Apes, and I do go back to that on occasion. Um, there is a lot of naivety in, in, in the approach that Burroughs took for that novel. I mean, he knew nothing about Africa. He knew nothing about, you know, and there's a lot of uh, implicit racism, and there's a lot of, you know, rather um, dubious aspects to it. Um, but there were 24 books in the series, and by the end of it, um, he had made his own journey, and it was far less um, offensive, I think, towards the end of the series. But structurally, that first novel, Tarzan of the Apes, is a brilliant masterwork. It is mm. brilliantly put together. The voice is extremely sure, uh, very confident, and you didn't have, he, he had no sense that it was rushed. Whereas, you know, some of those books, say book 18 or 19 in that series, uh, he just, he mailed it in. You know, he was picking up the paycheck to write another Tarzan mm. book and it showed. Um, but the first novel, um, actually, and the two that follow is basically one big novel, uh, are surprisingly good, even to this day. Uh, so somewhat related. Um, I don't know if you've ever answered this in an interview before, but if you had to pick like the quintessential, like, and this is a tough one, the quintessential like fantasy book doesn't even have to be for like it being groundbreaking, but the book that you think to understand fantasy one should read. Well, <clears throat> I would say for an adult, and I make that distinction because The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings is, is the, the one series that can kind of bridge uh, childhood yeah. and adulthood. I would say for modern fantasy, it would be Stephen R. Donaldson's Lord Falsbane. Um, that one, that one actually is a conscious dialogue with Lord of the Rings from an adult perspective. And I just, it, I just borrowed it the other day. Did you? I, like the book. Yeah, and it 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 drags it drags the fantasy fan into adulthood out of the world of Tolkien. Um, and I would say that one for me was just jaw dropping. Uh, the whole first two chapters I've gone back to reread because they are they are so unexpected and. Donaldson takes so many risks and gets away with them that that one that one I think really really set the stage for a lot of fantasy now at the same time a lot of epic fantasy decided to ignore that and went back to rewriting Tolkien and so yeah. you'll find those ones out there and they're popular but yeah that's a good question thank you I mean I'm very hyped I'm gonna go to a bookstore and find this now if I can the style is very latinate um, so it takes a while to get to get into, and you may need a dictionary at hand. I know I did. Mm. I got <laughs> I'm out. I have to tell you, I was I was surprised to find a paperback copy here in uh, northern Japan. So it was quite yeah. Wait, actually, that's, that's awesome. Yeah, that's intense. That's My eyes popped up when I saw it. Yeah, no, that's really good. And that's the first one, right? Lord, Lord Fowl's yeah, yeah, Bay. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. So obviously, this is a podcast about a book, so we're obviously going to be talking about books, but. Um, mm -hmm. beyond that, like, what are some of your other passions and hobbies? Like, are, I don't know. What do you find the most, I guess, joy out of doing? Whether it, maybe it is writing, maybe it's reading, but. Um, this is, yeah, actually the most joy that I, I, I still experience when I'm not doing writing 
is to walk uh, a forest, a field, a riverbank, um, mm. anything uh, related to archaeology. And so when I'm walking there, I'm not looking at the leaves and the flowers. I'm looking at the ground, looking for artifacts. And I simply, I mean, I'll do that to my dying day. Um, and I still involve myself in archaeology when I can. And um, it's, to me, it's part of, it's, it manifests in the series that you're reading because I did a lot of work as a surveyor. So I, my job was an archaeological surveyor. So my job was to go out and find sites. And in order to do that, you have to look at the environment and then peel it back in time to see how it's changed. And then you rely upon um, the continuity of, of the human condition. And you think, well, where would I camp in this peeled back environment? And I go there and I stick a shovel in the ground. And sure enough, I find artifacts. So wow. that's, that's what I did. And, and it's what I, I do to this day. Um, the last stuff I've worked uh, was in southern Italy. And it's a site called Fornello, which you can actually volunteer on. Uh, Messers is uh, M-E-S-S-O-R-S. Um, is the program and it gets a lot of Americans and Canadians who go there for two weeks uh, in Puglia, Southern Italy. And mm. the site you're working on are a series of limestone caves that have been at one point, uh, Byzantine era, I guess, turned in, converted into churches. And so they have um, frescoes on the walls that need to be restored and repaired. And then 20 meters away from the cave mouth, there is a stretch of flat land that was a Greek colony. And prior to that, a Neolithic village. And it's plowed, it's plowed ground and you can find, you know, um, pottery, Greek pottery, black, black on red, red on black. Um, so stuff from the fifth century BC, sixth century BC. And it's just all lying around and put me in a site like that. And I'll be there for days. You know, I just, I'll walk that site. And, um, that's the stuff I love doing. What, what do you think it is about seeing those types of sites and artifacts that excite you? you know? um, I lived in England for a while, and it was quite a, a revelation to be walking the landscape there, to realize that everything I saw had been shaped by human, human activity in some fashion or another, that entire landscape. Whereas, say, in Canada, where I did most of my archaeology, you scrape, you scrape through the first you know, six inches of soil and you left human history behind. Um, so there it's natural geological forces that have shaped this country and and America and the human presence probably at best will go back up here, 10,000 years, um, down in the States, maybe 30,000, maybe 40,000, but Southern England, you're looking at a million and a half years of human activity. And that part really gets me going. I know I was on a book tour uh, for the French editions uh, last year uh, in November. It was a month-long book tour. We went through 12 cities in France, and then I ended up in Paris, just outside Paris. And they put me up in a, a room or a room in a building that was 17th century, I think. It was a converted uh, monastery of some form or nunnery. And I was standing out in the backyard, um, which had a fountain and a whole bunch of planted trees and was kind of facing a cliff. And um, just out there having a cigarette. And I looked down around the trees. There was this earth, ground. Everything else was paved. But around the trees, you had this sort of 10-foot circumference or 10-foot diameter um, circle of, of broken earth. And I started noticing flint artifacts. And so I started collecting the flint artifacts. And I found one particular artifact, which was what's called a, a Levallois core. 
And it's, mm. it's uh, a flint core, which is a very specific style of taking flakes off the core in order to make tools from the flakes. But it's a very specific style. And that style is Neanderthal. Is Neanderthal. So there I was standing in the back of this um, 17th century uh, monastery. And in the ground were things that were at least a quarter million years old that had been handled by by, by humans. Whoa. And then one of them was uh, what's called a thumbnail scraper. And the scrapers, of course, are tools used by women and made by women. So I knew I was holding in my hand something that had been handled by a Neanderthal woman maybe wow. a quarter million years ago. And it's just so cool. You know, I, that's the thing that gets oh, me going. That is so cool. Yeah. <laughs> Now, you obviously have a, you have a great love for archaeology. Mm. I actually believe I read you're trained in it. But what was it that inspired you or, or led you to change your career path to writing fantasy? Was it was it the money? Was it the babes? <laughs> was it the like money? which one? No. Um, well, mind you, <laughs> mind you, archaeology. Um, when I was working, it was the the, the golden age for archaeology. Mm. Um, the funding has all disappeared. It's all dried up. Mm. Um, also, I was kind of chafing at the academic side of things. I preferred the field work and I continued with field work for close to 20 years. Um, but the academic side of things was starting to really um, sour on me. Mm, um, yeah. So I was in the master's program um, and then I went to Belize in Central America and worked on a dig and then traveled through Central America. And I remember I'd applied for the writing program at the University of Victoria here. Um, and I was in a sweaty phone booth in Belize city talking to my mother, who said a letter had arrived from UVic, University of Victoria. So I had her open it. And in that letter, um, basically, they were offering me entrance into the creative writing program. And I just, that was it. I just yeah. dropped the archaeology yes. right there and then. And it was the best choice I made because um, it was a brand new writing program and the instructors were phenomenal. They were excellent. So I learned so much from them. And how much had you been writing before that acceptance into the program? Not much. I'd done about three short stories. One of them had, had come in second place at a, in a small short story contest in Winnipeg. And that was it. But um, it's something I definitely wanted to do. I thought I was going to be an illustrator. I thought I was going to actually be a comic book artist. Uh, that's sort of where my early training was. Was Are you good at drawing too? You draw? Well, that's what I did. I drew and I painted. I painted oils. Um yeah, well, um, you got there's there's got to be some like oh that's just insane. You do so many things. Well, early on, uh, my high school actually had a program with the Winnipeg Art Gallery for, I guess, certain students in their art program uh, to take courses at the art gallery, and I got sent to do those. One of the things that slowed me up was uh, comic book um, illustration at the time was old style. There was no mm. airbrushing. There was no, um, nothing online. It was, there was, there were no computers. So to do a single panel or a single page would take me like two weeks. It was ridiculous. And, and it just, it was, it struck me that it was almost insurmountable, um, mm. to be a comic book artist, uh, at least in, in Canada at the time, I would yeah. have had to gone to New York or somewhere like that. Um, yeah. and secondly, because I got all the, the, the early training in, in uh, painting and um, sketching and life drawing and all the rest, I was burning out very fast. Oh, um, okay. And eventually I, I saw that there was always an implicit narrative in everything I drew, similar to comic books. So I eventually dropped the drawing and just stuck with the narrative. And that's what led me into yeah. writing. Gotcha. So uh, what, are you, what, is, what are you bad at? What's like the thing that Steven Erickson cannot do? 
Oh, <laughs> uh, I can't tap dance work shit. Um, uh, have you tried? I've been there. No. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, just problem. Like see, see I, was, I, was, I was also a fencer for close to 40 years. Um, I've only stopped fencing maybe three years ago. And one of the things about fencing is it's arrhythmical. So um, you're about breaking timing. You're not about falling into rhythms and patterns. In fact, a lot of what you do is to read the other person's timing and then counterattack into, into their timing. So, and I talked to um, a friend of mine who, and she's been fencing longer than I have. And she says she can't dance worth shit because all her fencing has trained her to actually break rhythm and break time yeah yeah that's super interesting it's wild yeah so that's my excuse because i can't dance for shit i will say don't worry peter and i are are literally college musicians and we can't dance either so yeah we we also yeah but if you've got an instrument that's fine you can get away with it right yeah yeah. Hey, I, I just have danced I, once, you, and I will not hear you and you teach my Peter, skill. I, you can't dance. I'm sorry. Wow. <laughs> um, Whereas my wife is a great dancer, so it's, mm-hmm. it, it's been a point of contention what? through 30 years of marriage. Yeah. If that's the the biggest point of contention, I think that that's pretty pretty great. So. <laughs> well, she might disagree, but anyways. <laughs> uh, I have an unrelated question. Sure. How did you pick the name Erickson? It's my mother's maiden name. Um, oh. I originally was publishing as, as under my own name, Steve London, a uh, contemporary fiction novel in, in the UK. And, um, and then we, we, we sold the fantasy novel to a different publisher. And the original publishers came back to my agent and said, well, we don't want to confuse the audience. So we'd like, we'd like, your, we'd like Steve to have a pseudonym for his fantasy work. And um, mm. uh, my mother was uh, a great reader. Um, uh, a reader of, of virtually any book I bought, she would end up reading. Um, mm. Plus, she loved things like James Bond and um, Dashiell Hammett and, and all of the the spy thrillers uh, of the time. And so um, she died before I got published anywhere. So in order mm. to um, honor her, um, I chose Erickson. That's her maiden name. That's, nice. that's really nice. That's not at all. I just, that's not at all. I didn't even think there was going to be a story, like a real solid. That's really nice. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, it's, um, it is what it is. Hello, everyone. Producer AJ interrupting this conversation in the middle of the episode to do my regular thanks and updates. I will keep this quick so we can get back to it. Our first thanks this week obviously goes out to Steve Erickson for coming on the show and for being such a wonderful person to talk with. Thank you also to all of you who reached out and told us he was listening to the show. And can I let you in on a little secret? We knew the whole time. (laughs) We've been in contact with Steve for a couple of months now, uh, trying to make this episode a reality, and we couldn't be happier with the way it turned out. If you're enjoying the episode, please tell a friend. And if you've told all your friends, why not tell the internet how much you like us by rating us five stars on Apple Podcasts and leaving a review. We read all of them, and we really appreciate all the positive things you guys have had to say. Okay, just a couple more things, and we'll get back to the show, I swear. Thanks to Dan Gezerick for making our spectacular logo. You can follow him on Twitter at Dan Gezerick for the hottest GMC commercial takes. And of course, the incredible track used in today's episode is by the one and only Amaranthin. The song is Floating Man from their album The New Romantic, which you can find along with their other music on bandcamp.com. Com. Links to their pages will be in the show notes, and 10 Very Big Books will be back on November 22nd with chapters 11 and 12 of Deadhouse Gates. I will talk to you then, but for now, let's get back to the conversation with Steve Erickson. 
You know, George R. R. Martin gets called the American Tolkien all the time. Do you think we should get Canadian Tolkien going Ooh, for you? Like no, Canadian? no, don't relate me to Tolkien at all because Tolkien was never my inspiration for fantasy, right? Yeah. There's two threads that you, you come from. Uh, one of them is sword and sorcery and the other is epic fantasy. And epic fantasy, at least in, in the modern sense of, of the meaning of that phrase, um, would be Tolkien is the one who gave birth to epic fantasy. Uh, modern do you feel like his tropes are primarily what you're bouncing off in the yep. work or yep. yeah absolutely and writing against all the time um in fact i'm convinced uh frodo should have died yeah yeah he should have gone down with the ring a hundred percent and the reason being is actually it's, it's a fictional reason it's a structural reason all of frodo's companions believed him dead and so we got to witness their grief if that grief um is then held to be false or uh, unrequired, then it takes the emotional impact away. Yeah. I would rather see and feel that grief that they're feeling, knowing that he had gave, given his life um, to get rid of the ring. Anyways, I've had that argument on panels. I've, I've <laughs> offended so so many people. You have no idea, but I will say <laughs> over and over again that he definitely should have died. But so I came out of the sword and sorcery um, stream. So it was yeah. uh, Robert E. Howard, Fritz Leiber, um, Carl Edward Wagner, uh, all of these writers, mostly short stories. Uh, there's a few novels in there. And that's the stream I came through to, to get up into fantasy. So, no, don't call me. Don't relate me to Tolkien. Um, <laughs> don't compare me to Martin either. Um, the Canadian someone. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, um, George's uh, Game of Thrones came out, I think, maybe the year, two years before Gardens of the Moon. But Gardens of the Moon had yeah. been written eight years mm -hmm. previous to that. Yeah, I guess so, right? Um, and so I know I, I've seen people comment saying, oh, well, Erickson kills off characters because Martin did. Well, no, <laughs> not really. <laughs> I planned to kill off plenty of characters long before that. So, And he's writing a, a fairly Eurocentric style fantasy, and I was writing against that and mm. continue, yeah. continue to write against that. I feel like the, the, the two series are compared a lot, but are, they are. are pretty different in a lot of very meaningful different, ways. Very different. Yeah. Yeah. One of the problems, what happens is if you pull across a Eurocentric um, inspiration for your fantasy world, um, you, you you can end up dragging some things with it. Um, and some of them are not just tropes, but they're uh, now fantasy cliches, where the barbarians are in the north, uh, the hordes are, sure. hordes are in the east, the south is full of the, the decadent peoples, the civilizations. All of that is Eurocentric. And then yeah. if you're going to write a quasi-pseudo-medieval kind of uh, culture in that secondary world you created um and you're dragging it from this world then you're bringing patriarchy with you and mm, yeah. you know it sucks because it limits what the female characters can do and so this malazan series the malazan world was intended to have no sexism in it so we created a magic system that was egalitarian it was something anybody could reach and if access to power is available to everyone you cannot have a gender-based hierarchy of power. It cannot cannot come into being at all. And that's why it's it's the Malazan world has no sexism. It has predation, but predation will always exist. It exists among all species. Yeah. And yet at the same time, we could not signpost it, right? We could not sort of wave the banner around saying this is a, a world without sexism because none of the character points of view would think of it in those terms, right? Yeah. They just live it and they don't question it. It simply is. So, yeah, there's a big difference between what Martin, Martin did with Game of Thrones and, and the Malazan stuff. 
Huge yeah. difference. Uh, you you mentioned earlier that the the, the story kind of came about from a, a tabletop game. Do you still tabletop? No, no. I discovered um, basically it draws from the same creative well, and so if I'm running a game, I'm I'm basically using all of my uh, creative energies to entertain and and, and guide these players. Um, yeah. And that's a blast. There's no question about it. But I've got contracts. I've got books. I've got to write. So <laughs> it's one or the other. And I don't, yeah, I don't yeah, get yeah. paid to run games. Hmm. Hmm. Well, we've been going for a bit. India, do you have any final questions you wanted to ask? Well, okay. So I guess not really why. I, I uh, Why? But then also, like, what was really what made you persistent to keep going to get it published? That's really what I'm uh, yeah. more interested um, in. Well, I, when I wrote it initially and finished it, I sent it off to uh, two major U.S. publishers. Um, I think it was Del Rey and Tor. It went to Tor first, and it sat with Tor for 18 months. And in fact, I'd gotten a note saying uh, we're waiting for one last reader, but we're really, you know, interested in this thing, etc. So I was all hyped, and then right. the manuscript shows up in the mail, oh. and they turned it down. So then I sent it to Del Rey, which was Stephen Donaldson's publisher. And it took them about nine months before they sent it back. And bear in mind, you don't send electronically. Uh, there was no electronic sending. There was uh, printed out manuscripts. And at that point, I think I was discouraged enough to simply put it on the shelf. Um, mm. And that's where it sat. And so then I wrote, uh, I got a two degrees in writing and um, moved to England, carrying that manuscript with me thinking, well, I do want to be a writer because it's, it's the only thing I was really, I felt I was really good at. And I hated, I hated working any other kind of job uh, apart from archeology span and there was no archeology span work to be had at the mm -hmm. time. Right. So uh, I basically, we moved to England because my wife's English um, and I had a five-year plan to find an agent and I'd written a contemporary fiction coming of age novel Called this river awakens and so i was looking for a publisher for that and we found one uh so i had i had the agent within three years um and then it was a question of well what am i going to do next well i pulled down gardens of the moon off the shelf and dusted it off and revised bits of it sitting at a, a pub in dorking in in surrey in england the pub was called the bush and i'd go down there with this crappy old um mac laptop one of the first laptops they ever made it weighed about eight pounds. Um, <laughs> it had to be plugged in. It was a monochrome screen. And I basically revised Gardens of the Moon at that point and fired it off to my agent. And um, uh, he wasn't expecting that. But he ended up um, uh, farming it out to, well, passing it out to a number of, of US or uh, UK publishers in fantasy. Mm. And then Bantam UK was the one that, that um, jumped on it. And that editor, I... I'm lucky enough to have been with for the entire, uh, almost virtually everything I've written, um, the same editor. Bantam UK has since been bought out by, well, it's, I guess it's part of Random House now, uh, which owns virtually everything in publishing. Um, and then it took three years to, one of the rejections we were getting a lot, even when we were being published in the, in the UK uh, from the American publishers, was that my books were too complicated for the American reader. Mm. Truth fair, and yeah, too many fair characters. Point, fair point. <laughs> you think? Do you think? Um, and I, I, I was fairly convinced that that wasn't the case. But eventually, uh, we ended up almost twisting Tor's arm. Um, 
to get them to to buy into the series mm. and they did and to this day um my highest uh royalty earnings are coming from the states so i was right you know that audience yeah, was yeah. there on your side. we're there. not that and dumb we can read it not in the least <laughs> not in the least and um so i feel vindicated by that um because I knew I, I was convinced that there was an audience out there for it. And that's probably what kept me going more than anything else uh, all the way through that was that somewhere out there, there was an audience for this. And um, yeah. it's just a question of knocking down, uh, getting your foot in the door with an agent and then seeing where it takes you. Hmm. That sounds like a lot more. You make it sound a lot less impressive, I feel like, than it actually is to hold out for like to just believe in yourself that much that you and, and then to to have the what you have now, which is a New York Times bestselling author. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it, it, it was a miserable uh, gathering of years. I get, I'll tell you that. Um, we were, we were uh, I remember I was writing first draft of Gardens of the Moon. We were living on Salt Spring Island, beautiful island here in the, just north of where we are right now. Hmm. Um, starving in paradise. Neither of us had a job or uh, on welfare. My wife was pregnant. Um, and... Ooh. I wrote the first book in four and a half months. I wrote Gardens of the Moon. And then we just basically packed everything up uh, with a one-year-old baby, jumped into uh, a Volkswagen camper van and drove south. And we spent the winter in Bisbee, Arizona, and then went back up to Winnipeg where I got archaeology work. But when the archaeology work dried up, um, yeah, we were, we were poor. We were really poor. Damn. Moving to England helped in some respects, but we were just... I was taking temp jobs all over the place and um, it was, it was hard going. It's hard going. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I do want to say part-time archeologist, part-time freelance writer is the most millennial job description I've <laughs> ever heard in my entire life. <laughs> I'm no millennial. I'm no millennial. I know, yeah. but you really fit the bill in some ways. Well, I, and not only that, I mean, I came to getting published rather later than most fantasy authors do. You know, when I go to conventions now, um, the new big names that are coming up, they're all, you know, 20 years younger than me, easily, if not younger. Yeah. And it seems that that, that sort of peak period um, I missed. And so I came at it somewhat later than many of the others. Hmm. At least I got the books done. And that was the key for me. It took 11 years uh, of writing, but I got the series done. Damn right. How does it feel, you know, we're, we're about 20 years out from Gardens of the Moon being published, yeah. right? So, I mean, yeah, I guess you wrote it eight years before but how does it feel to have that book you know i, I don't want to put it too strongly but in some way be so defining in the way people engage with your work or or first probably come to yeah. the Malazan world oh, yeah. do you mean like how does it feel to have that book that i'm sure when you wrote it you were not like this is going to be the entry you know the on the envoy the amush boost um, yeah to, to it all <laughs> um yeah. How does it feel? Well, I knew it was going to be divisive. I didn't think it was going to be as divisive as it was. Um, mm -hmm. One of the things that, as a reader, um, I didn't read just fantasy. I read everything. And I was a huge fan and remain a huge fan of science fiction. And so when I read Frank Herbert's Dune, I thought, this is an awesome structure for a novel. You're dropped yeah. right in it, and you gotta, you got to tread water for quite some time before you start piecing the story together. So I thought, well, why don't I try that for fantasy? And so that's what I did. And that's what Gardens of the Moon. That structure, yeah. the structure of Gardens of the Moon is, is ripped off straight from Dune. Um, well, I love Dune. So it's yeah, a but, <laughs> but the thing is a lot of, you know, there, there's a big divide between fantasy readers and science fiction readers. And there, yes, there are plenty of 
plenty of readers who, who indulge in both genres uh, as fans, but there are plenty of others who don't. And they'll read fantasy, they won't read science fiction. And so it never even occurred to me that the structure I was using was going to be divisive. It was going to... Do you feel like there's a big gulf between the two or do you think they're more similar than people think? There's a huge gulf between the two. Yeah. yeah. What, what, type, what, what do you think characterizes that difference? Uh, reader expectation. Um, mm. It's what they are coming to expect when they open up a fantasy book versus a science fiction book. Um, yeah. Uh, even use of language changes um, and the expectation changes for that. Yeah, they're, they're hugely different, but I mean, I adore them both. Um, and again, like I said, it never occurred to me that that was going to prove a problem. Um, I'm simply dropping, dropping people into a story the way I did. And it, yeah. it did, obviously, and still does. Yeah. I, I lived with Peter while he was reading Gardens for the first time um, and the second time. And then finally finished it on the third time. So I'm aware of, of, of how much division it can cause. <laughs> oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I watched him throw his copy of the book across the apartment one day. I didn't, I didn't throw the book. That. I that. want to correct the record. I should warn you, there will be instances to come in these books where you're literally in the last episode, the last episode, last episode of gardens i yeah there i'm i am recorded throwing a book across the room because i was so mad at how good of a writer you are screaming yes, well, that is, you, you that may is... be throwing it for other reasons i'm but sure i will coming. yeah just warning you now there's a lot of diverse characters at the center of the book um you know racially sexually all these things but also you know many loathsome and heroic characters you know lots of different types um I'm sure you're not surprised when like people love Whiskey Jack or Coltane or Dujek or, you know, some of these people. Has there been any characters that you're surprised when they connect with readers? Like, do you meet a lot of Gaz fans out there? No, uh, I hope not. <laughs> yeah, your, your two friends don't know who Gaz is, but... Yeah, my Gaz joke's lost on them. Yeah, uh, let, let's just say a, a fairly despicable character. Um, yeah. <laughs> Uh, no, I sometimes wait to see if um, sympathy arrives in characters you wouldn't think it would arrive with. Um, yeah. I mean, you guys are being tested by Felicity at the moment. Um, mm -hmm. But there's I a character named Kalor that I'm actually uh, massively sympathetic towards. Uh, mind you, I have to be sympathetic towards all my characters. But And so I gave Kalor his moment in, in the eighth book where yeah. I could potentially sway some readers and some because everybody hates Kalor yeah. for obvious reasons, which you'll come to. Um, but no, I don't really think of, uh, I know, I know certain characters like Karsa, Karsa Orlong, um, very divisive uh, as a character as well. Yeah. But there are reasons for that, for sure. Yeah, yeah. You know, the way you guys are talking, I feel like the best is yet to come. Because I, I don't know so. any of these people. I hope so. I hope so. I, I would say, even so. if not the best, the bulk, because there's eight more India. And yeah, it's good. at least. Fair. The bulk is, bulk is yet to come. Yeah. The bulk is yet to come. Well, we're probably nearing the end here. Um, it's been great having you on the show, Steve. It's been um, fun. Uh, I know you're writing up The God is Not Willing mm -hmm. right now, but is there any other uh, projects in the work, any other things you're trying to get out there, any hot gossip? <laughs> oh, spill the, well, spill the, the tea. tea. Well, I was going to recommend, actually, as a sidelight, you guys take on Willful Child, the three books. Hmm. Because, Peace especially in you, I mean, are you, are guys, you, Star Trek, are you guys Star Trek fans? Are you Star Trek fans? Ooh. P uh, P Peter enjoys a good track. Yeah. I, I wouldn't know. I haven't delved into that. Yet. Not, okay. I don't know yet. I haven't no. tried it. Did you like Galaxy Quest? I don't know what that is either. That's a film. With Tim Allen? It's a, it's like a comedy. It's like a kind of a satire. Professor um, Snape is in it? Like 2001-ish, maybe? It's, no? it's, a, it's an awesome film. So see, 
If you like Galaxy Quest, watch it. Um, and if you like it, then Willful Child might be a lot of fun for you guys to play with. Because you can do audiobooks on that easily. Mm. Completely, different, completely different <laughs> writing style. And um, it might be fun as well because we're just closing out a deal for a graphic novel version uh, of, Willful, mm. of Willful Child. So timing could be good. Well, I like cool. this idea. Keep that in mind, yeah. This is something I'm into. <laughs> he is the most obnoxious. If you think of Captain Kirk I try not to. On, on steroids, then yeah. Yeah, you're looking at yeah. Captain Hadrian. Yeah. Okay. And uh, the God is not willing. Uh, you think uh, early 2020? Is that? Yeah, I'm hoping to be done said? by by the end of the year, this year, end yeah. of December. Um, I think I'm about three quarters of the way through, maybe maybe hmm. two thirds. But anyways, it's it's coming along nicely. This is awesome. I just I'm so sorry that that brought up a random question for me. I've never thought about the process of writing a book. I just thought of the book being done. Hat, do you? <laughs> not sure where where that disconnect mm. was, but <laughs> just really quickly, is it just something that you like? Do you have to make time for it, or do you just like wake up when you're like, oh, gotta go, gotta go write? Well, yeah, it's. It has to be a profession. So I don't write at home. Um, I write in, in bars, restaurants, uh, even food courts. You can check the acknowledgments usually. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Um, I need people around me. I need, I need the human conditions surrounding me, um, engulfing me even, uh, to be writing this stuff. Um, and then for this series, I did four hours a day, usually about six days a week. And I never did a word count, which means I don't say I have to do 2,000 words a day or anything like that. Mm -hmm. um, I put the time in. And so some days, maybe I got two paragraphs done. Other days, I got 10 pages. And mm -hmm. they're both fine, as long as I put the, the four hours in. And so mm -hmm. it's just putting the time in. It's like anything anything you want to learn to do. Right? If you, you play an instrument, you put the time in with your practice. And it's the same kind of thing. Do you still practice? Practice what? Writing. I don't know. Like, do you ever just kind of like? I don't. I don't no, know. I don't practice writing. I I, I I don't have time to practice writing. Um, in a sense, one practices writing by reading, uh, reading other authors. Yeah. Fair. Uh, because you pick up things and um, and you say, well, you know, that was really well done. I'm gonna, I'm going to steal that, and, and mm -hmm. you know, you steal it. Um, and you can do that in terms of structure, in terms of word choice, sentence pattern. All kinds of things. It's, I guess, not much different from a guitarist picking up riffs um, and, and building off of a riff that, that they've heard. To, to build on that, and uh, maybe it, maybe it'll take us out. Um, we talked about Donaldson earlier, mm. but maybe what are what are about maybe two or three books that you think like left a big mark on you, and that you think maybe more people should ought to try and read fantasy or in any other. Um, Glenn Cook's uh, Black Company. Uh, first, the first trilogy. I, I, I actually consider my main inspirations um, Glenn Cook and Steve Donaldson, and I'm somewhere in between the two because Cook is a very, very um, terse writer, mm. and yeah, there, and there's a lot of humor in there, which I really appreciate, which we don't see enough of in, in epic fantasy. Um, you Second. will in this book uh, or in this series, the Malazan series. Um, yeah. But uh, I would say, yeah, Glenn Cook and uh, Donaldson stuff were. Huge inspirations. Uh, John Gardner's Grendel, I think, was a big inspiration for me. Um, Gustav Hasford's The Short Timers, which was turned into the film uh, Full Metal Jacket, mm. is a fabulous, uh, amazing Vietnam War novel. Um, let's see what else. I liked a lot of uh, Ursula Le Guin stuff. I read a lot of Andre yeah. Norton when I was growing up. Um, Lee Brackett, uh, I was a huge fan of her stuff. Um, yeah, that's, that's 
it's a fair list there, I think. Yeah, yeah. Have you revisited them to return to what we oh, talked yeah. about? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I picked up um, a Masterworks collection of Lee Brackett's uh, Mars stuff. And it, it is it is still very good. It is, it's great oh, writing. Awesome. It's great writing. Um, yeah, she was, she was highly underrated uh, as an author. Well, I think that'll about do it for us. Uh, Alrighty. Well, we can keep going. I, we didn't want to hold you too long. It's been it's been great talking to you. I think I'm okay for a bit. Uh, oh, yeah, ten minutes. That's fine. And then I got to eat supper. Oh, oh, wait. This leads me into a question. This leads me oh, into. Oh, my Josh question. does have a dinner question. I, I did. I do have a dinner question. Um, what is okay? And it's a two parter. Okay, question. And the second one's not written off the cuff. First, I, I can't, I can't believe your... we're getting to this. <laughs> <laughs> what is what's your favorite start to finish meal? And then second, what is that sleeper Canadian hit? That thing that you can only get in Canada that us Americans just don't know about. <laughs> you mean food wise? Uh, I yes, food wise. Or if there's oh. a, a a Canadian thing that we don't know about that we should get on, great. Um, yeah. Well, there's one thing that you can only get actually, I think, in Winnipeg, and it's a fish. Uh, it's called smoked gold eye, mm. and it is it's phenomenal. Yeah. Writing that one down. Smoked gold eye. If you write down any, if you have any takeaway so, from this, so it is the smoked okay. gold eye. <laughs> <laughs> huh. Um. But in terms of meals, um, you know, if I could get away with a small pill every day that would just transplant the necessity of, of cooking and eating, I probably would. Wow. So you're um, really, so Soylent yeah, is I, really your jam. Yeah, it's just, I, I'm notoriously lazy when it comes to cooking, especially mm-hmm. when I'm on my own, like I am right now. My wife's in England, uh, dancing girls have gone home. So it's just me. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I'll be cooking, a, well, actually I'll be cooking beef tenderloin steak and some frozen french fries. There you go. Mm. Why are you frowning, India? What's wrong with steak? No, no, no. I just thought that was actually pretty impressive for for someone to say they don't like cooking. But then you threw in the frozen fries and I was like, oh, I was hoping maybe some whipped potatoes or something in there. No, I've got a hockey game I want to watch. So, you know, something nice and quick. Priorities. Here, Here was a question we didn't end up getting to. Uh, oh god we, these are the b-sides yeah the, we're on the, on the b-sides now <laughs> if you were one of the founding races which would it be and why is it the kachain chamale kachain chamal oh damn it got fool. him you fool <laughs> never gonna do it um which race uh probably jagged mm. yeah they're the most fun it's yeah. a hot take that is a hot take well i feel like you've you haven't met some of the more lively no. ones yeah Hey, uh, I have a question. Are you super into tarot cards based upon how often, how important the deck of dragons the is? The deck of dragons? Uh, no, but we wanted a vehicle like that, um, similar to the tarot cards. Mm. And um, it became a, an interesting way of bringing the Pantheon's own hierarchy and structure uh, into the story. And, um, of course, the nice thing with the divinations that occur is that it allows me to seriously foreshadow stuff, but in a really obscure way. Yeah, Peter. Peter yeah. said if I go back and read Gardens of the Moon, the the scene with Tattersail, he was like, "You'll you'll be just pissed that the whole story's right there." I haven't pretty done much. it yet. Yeah. yeah, pretty much. Yeah. And then there's there's already been one deck of dragons in this, like the first one that happened in this second book. I stared at it. I mean, for like ten straight minutes, I read every word, and I was like, "This this jerk has given it to me, and I'm too dumb to know what he's giving it." I was so mad. Well, I have to entertain myself, don't I, when I'm re- yeah, writing this true. stuff, right? Yeah. 
Absolutely. So when you set out on like it just and to go back to talking about audacity, how 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 did you have the gall to turn in the second book and be like, okay, well, essentially there's none of the same characters and we're we're not follow, continuing the first story at all. You know, I, I mean, I had no choice because actually. The second book I started writing after Gardens of the Moon was Memories of Ice. Mm. And I had about 280 pages of that and lost it. Wow. What? And so, yeah, I lost the entire thing. Yeah. And so I was so... Tragic. Yeah, pissed off and heartbroken about it. I did not want to start back on page one. So Mm. I thought, okay, um, let me pick it up at what I thought was going to be the third novel, yeah, um, which was Dead House Gates. And as it turns out, structurally, that turned out to be far better to do Dead House Gates uh, as the second book. Yeah. So um, also, it's a very compact novel. Um, the storyline is, is quite discreet um, and it has a, a very strong conclusion. Yeah. Um, and so as a, as a kind of almost standalone, here we go kind of thing, it, it made sense. Um, and then with Memories of Ice, I was able to time-wise loop it back around. And so it became a very nice compact little um trilogy in and of itself yeah first three books yeah um we don't we didn't see a lot of like large-scale conflict in the first book but we we just uh the past week recorded our uh we had read the scene at the river crossing with coltane which is the like first, a, a major the, battle the first river crossing yeah yes well i've read a lot of books with like a really really big conflicts and like Yours was like it was really not hard to understand, like oh, what the characters were seeing, and and where did you, what 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 helped you with that? Like you obviously you've shown multiple times that you can write a one on six battle, like you do several times, but this you know how did you break it into a way that the reader felt comfortable understanding what was happening? I don't know. Um, multiple points of view um, on the ground, kind of points of view as well. Uh, so I do touch on fog of war a fair bit in, the, in mm-hmm. these battle sequences um but i was always a war gamer um and i certainly mapped out um every battle that coltane engages in in the entire novel that's cool um yeah fully mapped out so then it was simply a, a case of putting you know the various elements where they needed to be um and then moving them across the board as it were to, um, to jump in on that i think one of my favorite sequences in the books uh, is not to. Uh, there's a certain battle in the sixth book in a city. Yagatan. Yeah. yeah. And I have read that you had that diagrammed as well. And and to build on what Josh is saying, I'm I'm so struck by that. I mean, that chapter is just you know it's blown out of the water anyway. But it, it's know, the one I, chapter where I wasn't going to let you go, right? Yeah, exactly. It's the longest and, chapter I, I've ever written. Yeah. And, and and it really feels that way. You're you're almost reading. You're like, I can't believe you know you're, mm. you're just going deeper and deeper. It's it's so enthralling. And and to build on that, even though the maybe a disorientation's a part of it, um, there is a there is a clarity. And I think Josh is touching on that to these kind of larger things where maybe the reader could become more confused by it. But I actually feel like you do such a great job of of kind of threading that needle. Good. Well, I'm I'm glad you think so. Um, it'll be interesting to see what India thinks as well. Um, I don't know if you've if you've read a lot of battle sequences and battle scenes in, in books or not, but um, these ones are pretty enormous. So yeah. um, the scales yeah. the squ- scales yeah. up there. Well, okay. It depends on on which scene because most of the I don't they just don't. Get me, I guess, is what I'm That's trying fine. to say. That's absolutely fine. Yeah, like some of them do, but then some of them, I'm, I'm just like, 
whoa. Like I'm listening to it and it was – and then they're like, yeah, he, he – um, what, what, what's a good example? He threw a – what is the word that I like? Lance. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the lance like and and chopped something went through his eyeball and bl- i but then others i think they're pretty like there was one in the last book when what was her name lorne adjunct lorne? Lorne? Yes. yeah, yeah. Lorne. her she had a fight scene where she just kind of like went against who was who who was with crocus it was that one where he, she just oh yeah s- crocus Kruppa, yeah mm-hmm. adult man Kru- oh yeah Krupp. And Marilio. She just, she just Josh, come them. on. Yeah. Krupp, Krupp. Krupp. So, yeah, she did. And, and in that, I felt very empowered. So some, mm-hmm. of the, some of them, I'm like, huh, I really like it. But then others, I'm like, whoa, this was more than, this was more than needed. There was a lot yeah. of imagery there. Is that the word? Yeah. It, and this novel is very much um, extremely graphic. In terms but of I like it. I don't know. But this one is kind of, a, I, I don't know if it's fel- Felicin. Felicin. I don't know if it's it's her, but I'm really I'm really feeling Deadhouse Gates. So oh, I think good. it is her. Good. She's she's my she's my girl. I think I wanted that. What I feel for her, I wanted to feel for Sorry, but I just we never got there. Her and I, and we still haven't. Yeah. No, she's kept pretty remote. Yeah. But now yeah. we we might now because she gets a little scrappy sometimes. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. She's coming to herself uh, through this book. Mm-hmm. But is it her? But who is it herself? I don't. Yeah. That's well, the- she's got yeah, she's got the echoes of of dancers still in her, um, but or cotillion if you want to call them that. But yeah, she is she is emerging from that as well. Yeah, so. I'm intrigued because sometimes like you like set me up for something big, and then it just doesn't happen. <laughs> I'm like, and that's part of that's part of um, undermining tropes. Okay, so think back to Gardens of the Moon, where towards the end of the book, Crocus falls in love with Chalice, this this noble yes. noble girl, and he's he's convinced that he can not only save the city, but get back in time to the garden party to save her. Yeah. Well, and, and of course, in your classic sort of fantasy novel, yeah, he, he goes back there and he, he saves Chalice and they live happily ever after. Well, by the time he gets there, Chalice has already run off with some other guy who saved her and uh, a guy whom she subsequently marries, in fact. So that's where I'm setting up your expectations and then I unplug them. Um, mm, I love that. But I oh, also good. hate that. <laughs> Cro- Crocus in the Garden is such a clown. I know, isn't he? He is. He is. Yeah. Is that when he like kidnaps uh, her, kind of? And he, it's just yes. super, yeah, it's super just, weird. He was just yeah. talking. Come on. He makes, a, he makes a choice. It was a choice. Absolutely. Yep. Uh, I, my last question I have and uh, is the maps at the beginning of these books. Uh, drive me crazy, there, don't they? Yeah. Uh, it makes me so mad at every mm. time we have these maps. Because I was looking for the, the slave camp for seven chapters, and it was yeah. literally a one-off sentence that goes, well, you know, that city south on the island we're on, and I finally was like, we're, I got the city. Oh, oh we're here? I, I, why? Why? <laughs> well, a lot of that's not my choice. Um, okay. I provide massive amounts of maps, um, or, or I did for this series. Um, and the publishers then decide, well, too many maps – too many maps, so they they cut down the numbers. Mm. Um, hmm. And not only that, Skull Cup is extremely small, so the scale of the map would not have shown Skull Cup, anyways. Mm. It's basically the main cities are are the ones visible yeah. on that scale. How many maps would you say you like, for example, would hand in with a book like that? Uh, I probably handed in a half dozen at least. But a lot of the maps are also ones that. I didn't hand in, but I used, obviously. Uh, the battle sequences are all mapped out, or were all mapped mm, out. Yeah. Um, 
and it would be a mistake to put the the full chain of dogs in at the beginning of the of the book the two maps for the chain of dogs you guys don't know the chain of dogs yet but that is Coltane's journey that's what it I was going to say I had rumble I had a feeling yeah. that's what it was called I but, bet I bet yeah. you did have that feeling Josh Whatever. I did it <laughs> <laughs> We're just like, oh, the dogs. But, yeah. But yeah, that, that route is entirely mapped. And um, mm. and again, it, it's it then became a decision. Well, if you put it in to begin with, then you know how far they get, et cetera. Um, gotcha. And that would have been a mistake. So so maps can occasionally be spoilers. Yes. Yeah. To, yeah. to maybe then go out on a, a final question about contrasting Garns of the Moon and the God is Not Willing. You talked a little about lessons you took away from Garns of the Moon, but I, I'm also interested in... You know, when a reader would pick up Garden of the Moon for the first time, it's the first time they are learning about the entire setting. Whereas when they would pick up... God is Not Willing? Yeah, well, God is Not Willing or or the Carcanus trilogy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they're bringing this extra knowledge with them, not only about the setting, but also the story. So I'm, I'm curious about how you are using that to inform it as opposed to when you're first introducing it in Garden of the Moon. Well, I, first I have to think of the, most of my readers will have read... Uh, the Molasses Book of the Fall for uh, The God is Not Willing. Yeah. There may be new readers coming in and I have to bear them in mind. So I have to still tell, you know, fairly straightforward story. Yeah. But a lot of the Easter eggs are going to be primarily for the audience that is familiar with the Molasses. Um, sure. And the book takes place 10 years after um, the last book of uh, the Molasses Book of the Fallen. So um, things have changed. Yeah. And uh, but then some things are the same. So that's going to be part of what's going to be, I uh, hopefully, uh, entertaining uh, for, for the a veteran reader yeah. of the Malazan stuff. I'm sure a lot of people are looking forward to it. Well, I'm having a lot of fun right now. I'm actually writing a chapter with um, a bunch of Malazan Marines, and uh, it's been great to revisit them because yeah. they're, they're uh, mostly insane. So <laughs> good fun. Yeah. Good fun. Well, it's been a lot of fun having you on the show. Yeah, yeah, it's been good. Oh, my goodness. And, and I'll, be, I'll be keeping an eye out for um, uh, your next podcast and uh, – follow you through as far as as far as you guys are prepared to go so well that's very kind oh it's Um, been fun yeah hopefully we get a time a chance to talk again sometime yeah it would be cool to revisit this maybe in in two books down the road or something along those lines that's gonna be awesome cool all right pleasure meeting you all yeah absolutely great to have a conversation enjoy enjoy your beef tenderloin yeah oh i will and your hockey. Oh, this was such a joy. Thank you so much. I really... Oh, well, thank you. It's my favorite yeah. episode yet. Thanks for writing the books, too. <laughs> yeah, that is... Oh, yeah. Those yeah, things, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Take care. Yeah, yeah you too. One. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Bye. India, I have to say, I'm very impressed that you've stayed with it because I listened through the podcasts all through Gardens of the Moon. And I thought, oh, you poor woman, you're you're actually getting this for the first time, having only read what Hunger Games was it, and yeah, then getting it, then getting it as an audible um, or as an audio, and um, rookie that mistake. Is just, rookie mistake. Uh, so you've got the book now, have you? I do. I have. I have yeah. both books now. Okay, but, good. But I'm good. not going to lie. I still also audio, but I have the book now. That's okay. Too. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I cannot imagine um, doing the, the 10 book series uh, from scratch uh, as, as audio. 
because it was never written that way. It's, it's written for multiple rereads as long a shelf life as possible. And so if you're just hearing it, man, you're going to miss so much. And especially because um, a lot he's one person reading all these different characters. Yeah, so every yeah. time, and then it was worse. So starting the second book because everything he uses Changed. similar voices, but for the diff- for different people now. And I'm like, who are you? You're not who you who you were last. No, book. <laughs> no. And, and, you know, and the other thing is, he never or none of them have ever contacted me on pronunciation. Clearly, I found that, I found that so clearly. surprising. And yeah. it's like all over the place. It's um. I can't even listen to them because of that. I just so like I, I, I can give you guys a pronunciation guide if yeah. you want. That's what we, we need. Should. That would be incredible. I, I'm just so surprised because I feel like if I, like you gave me a book to record and then, you know, you open it up and like I've, Amtos Felax there, my first mm-hmm. thought is going to be like, well, how did, how does the author say this word? Not like you I'm just going to take Peter's spin on it, you yeah. know? Yeah, I know. And, and. The only time it was done was for Forge of Darkness, and that, that's a great, uh, great reading of that book, mm. and the Willful Child books, mm. so, um, but not this. Yeah. Wow. So, pronunciation guide, shall I let's, begin? Let's do it. Pron- pronunciation away. Okay, Duiker. Duiker. Oh. Yeah. Wait, Duiker? Yeah, but Duiker. a very, very, very mild of that split with the I, so it's mm. Duiker. Duker. Mm. Uh, oh, oh my god. god. I don't even know who that is. Oh, that's no, it's the sword. <laughs> it's the type of it's the metal. That's the island as well. Okay. Oh, oh, oh you I'm mean Otatero. Oh, oh. I've, yeah. yeah, I've been saying it so wrong. <laughs> Can you say it again? Otatero. Otatero. I yeah. want to like phonetically write this. Uh, I'm already doing it. I have a Google Doc going. You got, it's all good. <laughs> I've started it. Okay. Um, Felicen. Felicen? Yes. Oh my gosh. Ah. For listen. Yeah. Ah. And Bowden, Haboric, mm. um, Culp. Let's see who else are we talking about here? Um, Kalam. Kalam. Uh, Kalam. Yeah. Oh. Um, Goodness. See anything else? Coltane, that's pretty easy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, you can throw some more out now. Oh, here's the obvious one. Um, Tyst and D. Tyst. What? Yeah. Think of the word Tyst as I wrote it. It's T-I-S-T-E. Well, it's a long I, and that's why you have the E at the end of it. If you took Ooh. the E off, it would be Tyst. Oh. Oh, All right. He's right. Tyst and D, Tysadur, and Tysliosin. Um Speaking of which, we had a real kerfuffle over how to say the Tyst Eater, Warren. Could you give us that one? <laughs> uh, is it curled Emerlon? Yeah, I think? We, yeah. We really, I really couldn't sort out that last one. Can you say the second part of that word again? Emerlon. Emerlon. Yeah. yeah. Wow. E-M-U-L-A-W-N. Phonetically. Yeah. Oof. Yeah. Okay. Oh, that's well, so I can't make any promises, but we'll give it our best. <laughs> Oh, Duiker's way nicer in my brain to hear than Diker, which is how I'd been saying it. So yeah, which is awful. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, about that. yeah, I agree. <laughs> it's really just yeah, 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 yeah. And I'm oh, um, the Holy Desert Reriku. Reriku. Yeah. Reriku. <laughs> it's so funny um, thinking about Shaik. 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 Yeah. Uh, what else? Iskiral Past, Icarium, Mapo. Those are pretty straightforward, I think. 
I feel worse because I know it's uh, mal Malazan is technically, but I'm always saying Malazan. I'm always yeah, most people her. do. Most people yeah. do. Yeah. But it is Malazan. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. Apparently, you guys have questions. I can't. We do. I can't.